Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. I so enjoyed uh, worshiping uh, today in both services that I just wanted to say thank you to the musicians who put in tons of time. They get here very early. Uh, it's only been more work since we've gone to two services. And I think it was uh, Augustine who said, uh, when we sing, we pray twice. And so thank you, musicians for, and sound people, for helping me to pray twice. Uh, this spring, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And there's a story that I'd like us to reflect on today and um, that I think will help us to understand both what Paul is saying, but also the application of what Paul is saying to us here today in the place and time that we exist. The story is about a couple out of London, Decca and Tony. Decca is the wife. Tony is the husband. Tony was Jamaican, was adopted by a British family. They met, they were married, they had two boys, two and four Uh, named Jake and Joe. And to celebrate their 10th anniversary, they went to Jamaica. They vacationed at Treasure Bay, which is a sleepy little fishing village, and had a wonderful time. And on the 10th day of their 10th anniversary, the day started with uh, Decca doing her yoga stretches on the, uh, the deck to their beach house. Tony went down to the water with Jake and was playing. And, uh, Decca became alarmed when she saw a boy kind of out in the water uncomfortably farther from the, from the beach uh, or from the shoreline than she was used to. Initially, she didn't think that it was Jake, but then realized it was, and of course started heading down quickly across the beach. Tony hit the water much earlier than she did and was out quickly to Jake, so by the time that Decca got to the shoreline, she was relieved that uh, Jake had already been met by Tony in the water. But as she watched, they weren't coming in. They were moving farther away. And, of course, uh, they began to wave for help. And so she charged into the water to meet them uh, out in the water. And Decca's a a remarkably strong swimmer. So she gets to Tony and Jake. She takes Jake. She gets on her back. She cups Jake and starts 
paddling back to shore, and she makes slow progress, but she's making progress. So she thinks, this is going to be okay. And once she gets out there, she says, I realize what a strong riptide it was that was sucking us out to sea. But she makes her way back slowly, gets to the shore, Jake's out, Jake's fine, everything is well and good. But she turns around, and Tony hasn't made any progress. And so a crowd has started to gather, fishermen are starting to run to the shore, people are headed out and throwing things. It takes about 10 minutes to get Tony into shore, but by that point in time, he's dead. Now, boys and girls, sometimes I'm reluctant to tell sad stories like that. But I think that um, it's the story of Jesus that actually enables and equips us to think through properly the sadness in the world. And it's without Jesus that there's no way to actually think through adequately the sadness in the world. And so that's why sometimes we consider stories like this. And we're going to come back to Decca. But for right now, she just serves as an example of someone who meets head-on in a very real way the unpredictability of life and the chaos of the world in which we exist. And this is something that Paul is going to be describing in the opening of chapter 2 of Ephesians. That the world is under the control of various forces that move it in a direction away from God. And as a result, it's chaotic and bad things happen. And really, Paul's, you know, the big picture of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is Paul saying, the world is much worse off than you think it is, but God loves it. And you are much worse off than you think you are, but God loves you. So to understand God's love, we first have to understand how bad off the world is and how bad off we are. And this is what Paul addresses in the beginning of Ephesians 2. How does he do it? He begins there in verse 1. By saying, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, one note. As we move through this passage, it sounds like what Paul is describing is something that was true of the Ephesians and is true no longer as a result of being unified to Christ. And there's an element of that that is true. And you might conclude that entirely if all you had was Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But Paul goes on to address the ongoing implication of all of these ideas. In other words, it's not like you come to Christ and suddenly you throw off, you've thrown off all your old clothes and you, you dress new and you, you're good to go for all of your future, right? You know well in your experience that you live in a place where you're constantly thrown back and forth between your old self and your new self. And it's a process of getting dressed and then forgetting and, and putting on the wrong clothes and then putting on the right clothes again. And so this is actually something that we need to have in mind as an ongoing reality. Paul will be saying this is who you are in Christ and who you need to be in Christ. But you can't, uh, um, when Paul sounds like he's referring to something that's utterly decisive in time, that's not really what's going on. And certainly not his agenda. And I'll mention that again and demonstrate it to you from the letter as we proceed. But I don't want you to think that this is all past tense and emphatically done. So Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul doesn't say that you were you were in a bad situation or you were sick or you had an off season. Paul says that you were dead. It doesn't get much more definitive than that. Your condition before God is is that you were dead. This is why, you know, I've asserted this to you a number of times, but I think it's a super helpful image that the zombie genre is popular today because it actually resonates with the reality that Paul describes. For Paul, there are only two categories, and you see that really clearly here in Ephesians 2. And the categories are you're dead or you're alive. You're either without Christ or you're with Christ. And for Paul, that describes the entire world. There is no third category. 
And so for Paul, if he was living today, I think he would say, listen, everybody's a zombie, except those who are unified to Christ. Everybody's dead. What does it mean to actually be dead? Why are we dead? And what does that look like? Paul goes on from here to list three major forces that corrupt all of creation in you in relationship to God as holy. Three different forces that we're subject to. The first force, it says in verse 1, is that is a result of following the course of this world. And Paul recognizes that the world is broken in sin, that it is bent, that there's a current that runs through it like a river. And that current moves away from God. And so if you are not intentional or thoughtful about that current, inevitably you will be swept up in it. We saw that C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters did a good job of pointing out this kind of notion when an upper-level demon is giving a younger demon advice on how to lead people astray from the church. And he writes, uh, It is funny how, noto- how humans always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. In other words, what Lewis recognized was uh, there's a current. And if the demons don't do anything, it's more likely that people will be swept along by the current unless other ideas, ideas of God and the Bible and the church are actually introduced to the person. The natural default, the natural current of the world is to move away from God in rebellion. Number two, that's the first force. Paul goes on in verse two. This is following the prince of the power of the air by which he's referring to Satan. He uh, calls him the devil in 4.27 and in 6.11 and the evil one in 6.16. For Paul, coming out of a Jewish tradition, there are numerous places in the Old Testament where there's direct reference to another level of created being that uh, intercede or interfere, depending on their allegiance, in the affairs of humanity. And so Paul recognizes these figures, he believes that they are interfering and affecting the people in the world and that uh, they exert a power and an influence over humanity. In fact, he will say in another place that, they, that Satan prowls for us, that we are his prey. And to keep in mind, you know, the lion and the gazelle walk much differently through the grasslands of Africa. The lion doesn't think he's anybody's prey, and isn't very worried about anything, but the gazelle is always looking over his shoulder, and the gazelle is always mindful of what the other gazelles are noticing, because you live differently when you understand that you pray. The Bible holds unequivocally that Satan is a reality, and that he is intent on anything that is destructive or inhibits the will of God in this world. There has to be a notion by which we work and realize that there is someone who is against us and intent in that purpose. To not do so would be to walk like a lion when you're really a gazelle. And if you walk like a lion when you're really a gazelle, eventually you're going to get eaten. It's not going to go well for you. Force number three. Now this is really quite remarkable because Paul has has listed, in essence, two cosmic forces. He says the first thing that bears down on us is, uh, is the course of this world. The second thing that bears down on us is the prince of the power of the air. The third thing, two cosmic forces, the third thing that he lists in equal relation to the other two forces is you. That your desires, the desires of your flesh, the passions of your, your mind and body are bent to the degree, your affections are twisted to the extent that they lead you in the wrong direction. 
You love good things too much. You love bad things. You think that you will find solace and comfort in things that don't offer that at all. And as a result, right, this thing also leads us astray. Again, this isn't something that's simply put away, that Paul is saying it's decidedly done. No, we could all confess with Paul, who struggles with this in Romans 7, writing, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know what I want. For, excuse me, for I do not do what I want, I, but I do the very thing I hate. Right? That tension existing between knowing what, what is good and holy and right for us, but also that desperate temptation and desire to do something else. We live in that tension. So these three things are the, that which is bearing down on us. The course of the world the power of the prince of the air, and your own flesh. Which at this point, you have to admit to some extent, things are stacked against you. Right? It's really kind of a hopeless description where everything as a result of fallenness and sin is so twisted and broken that there's really nothing that's leading you in the right direction. Not the world, not your enemy, and not your heart. So, how do we exist and live in the midst of that? Now again, I want to make sure, some of you are, are reading it and rereading it and you're thinking, this just describes what was true of the, of the Ephesians when they were Gentiles before they converted. Paul goes on from here to say, listen, you need to stop continuing living this way. In fact, in 4, he says emphatically, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Meaning they're still walking like the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's about to say, you have no idea how much you're loved. But what he's saying is, you have no idea how bad, how ignorant, how futile your life is, how dark and how hard your heart is, because you continue to walk just like a Gentile, which is what you were before Christ found you. So it raises the question for us then, what is it like to live as a Gentile? Right? If Paul is saying your problem, Ephesian believers, is that you're still living like a Gentile. What does it mean when we still live like a Gentile even though we know Christ? Well, why don't we look at a Gentile and see how they handle pain and suffering? Why don't we look at a Gentile and see how they handle the brokenness of this world? Let's look at Decca. Right? Suffering the tragic loss of her husband in a drowning. What is she going to do in the midst of this situation. And Decca writes a really a brilliant essay. She's in journalism in London. But she actually gives us a picture of three or four different ways in which we, we meaning uh, both Gentiles and when, us when we act like Gentiles, try to handle this broken and fallen world. And the first way, as she's struggling with the death of her husband, Tony, is to create illusion. An illusion that helps one to handle the pain and suffering and to find a better way forward. And by illusion, this is what I mean. She writes, But within 24 hours, amid the chaos of shock and confusion, one fact had become incontrovertibly clear in my mind. I knew whose fault it was. We sat up late that first night on the terrace of a friend's beach house. I tried to explain how Tony had drowned, but kept breaking down. Semi-hysterical with self-blame deaf to all reason or reassurance. Why hadn't I tried to swim to Tony back to shore along with Jake? Why didn't I swim back to him after saving Jake? How could I not have panicked? 
even when he was drowning before my eyes. The other's astonishment at my outburst only made me angry. Why wouldn't they see? I could have saved him. Come to think of it, if I hadn't booked this holiday in the first place, he would still be alive. For that matter, he would still be alive if I had never met him. Whichever way you looked at it, if it weren't for me, Tony would not be dead. What's Decca doing? She's creating an illusion by which she thinks if she had just thought more clearly or made better decisions, she could have prevented what happened. As a result, she beats up on herself heavily. In hindsight, she goes on to realize this. I wasn't, I realized, feeling guilty at all, but creating a parallel universe in which Tony did not have to die, for which taking the blame was a small price to pay. And this is a really great sense. One cannot be a victim if one casts oneself as the culprit. One cannot be a victim as one casts oneself as the culprit. Now, what does Decca mean? She realizes that as she looks at this tragedy and desperately can't understand what's happened, part of her heart decides to create an illusion in which, oh, if I had done these things differently, I could have prevented it. And what she's doing is saying, if something like this happens again, I will be prepared. I will be able to prevent it. In other words, I, I really do have the capacity to prevent something like this happening. I just failed in this one instance. And so she makes herself, she blames herself and becomes a culprit and therefore isn't a victim. And what she means by that, she explains, is that if I say that this was unpreventable and that this just happens randomly and in a chaotic world, then that's the scariest confession of all. That means it can happen again and it can happen again at any point in time. And so instead, I'm going to blame myself for what's happened And therefore, I'm going to pretend that if something else like this comes up again, I'm going to be ready to handle it. Now, friends, we do this all the time. We find ourselves in a place of brokenness or frustration, and we the last thing we want to admit is this is just part of a world that God has divinely permitted and works through. But yes, I may be called upon to suffer anything at any time. No, it's much safer from the perspective of our bent hearts to say, oh, I am such a fool, I am such an idiot. I was wrong to do this. I, I, you know, flagellation, flagellation, flagellation. Now I'm stronger and wiser for the next time this thing comes up. Over and over again we do this. And what we're doing, making ourselves the culprit, is the same thing Decca describes. We don't want to be a victim. And by victim, I mean someone who actually acknowledges that you are without hope and without any opportunity to prevent what may befall you. Right? I'm not talking about victimization. Right? in which we, we, we create a narrative by which we're always taking advantage of. What I'm saying is uh, there's, um, you have to be willing to admit you're a victim. In, in, the, in this sense, the creation is subjected to futility by the will of the one who subjected it, Romans 8. And so if we ask, are, who is responsible for the brokenness of the world? Are we? Let's say yes. But if we say, who... Is God responsible for the brokenness of this world? We have to say yes. And that's a tension in which we exist. But it's a tension in which is actually freeing because there is a certain degree that we just have to realize things are so broken and we are so broken that we, it's hopeless. And there is an aspect that we are born into this. And a victim, not in the sense that we've... Um, in the sense that we are born and subject to three forces of which we have no power to control or change. You can't do anything to affect the course of the world. You can't do anything to affect the enemy and you can't do anything to affect the brokenness of your own heart. It is a hopeless state. 
So illusion is the first way that Gentiles, and we can reflect on how we do the same thing when we act like Gentiles, engage this world that is under foreign occupation. The second thing, though, that Decca talks about is escapism. Right? Simply running away, running into something that would distract her enough so that she wouldn't actually have to enter the pain and suffering of losing her husband. If I can just keep myself looking in a different direction. Now, Decca doesn't go down this road so much because she's already tried it. At nine, her mother died of breast cancer. Right? She's already suffered tremendous loss. And her mother was a great mother by everyone's account, but Decca looks back and she said, how did I decide to navigate the waters of losing my mother? And this is what uh, she writes. Uh, I was nine and in my mind, I reframed her death as a stroke of extraordinary good fortune. What does she mean? She goes on to say that Rather than entering the sadness and pain of losing my mother, I decided to to create a story in which I could escape. And the story was this. My mother's terribly overbearing. She would have controlled my entire life through high school and college. And now I'm liberated from her being under her thumb. Now, Decca looks back and says, that story wasn't true at all. My mother wasn't that person at all, but it was the story that I created in order to avoid the pain and suffering. I said this death is a gift rather than a curse. And so do we, whether we create a narrative of escapism where we define something as something that it's not to make it better and easier, or we run into an endless stream of romantic novels, or watching television every night, or drinking, or some other thing that distracts us, right? There is a constant temptation for us to live as Gentiles, which means constantly escaping the pain and suffering rather than entering into it. Third, Decca goes on to talk about how difficult it was to re-enter life in London because the third way that was required, uh, or the third aspect of dealing with the loss of Tony uh, required her to, to manufacture an image. And really, sadly, what she found is when she started to dialogue with her friends in London, she realized that people are willing to be sad with you and willing to be sorry to a certain extent. But they don't really want you to be too broken. There's a limit to how broken you can be in such a situation. And so she was having lunch with a friend back in London, and she describes this scene this way. No one wants to feel sorry for someone who turns out to disappoint their expectations of widowhood. By simply being myself, I was afraid I might incur disapproval. Telling the truth about how broken I felt was, I soon saw a mistake. She uh, is having lunch with this person and speaking of the person she's sitting across from. Her expression grew increasingly aghast and panic gathered in her eyes as she relayed how broken she was. But of course, Decker writes, I diverted hastily. It could be worse. Jake could have drowned too. The panic faded a fraction. And it was amazing that my brothers and friends could fly out. Yes, this was definitely working. What else? Um, And Tony would be so proud of how the boys are coping. When I think about it, this whole situation could be so much worse. We're really very lucky. She, her friend, relaxed into a beam of approval. And I basked in its warmth. How sad. That Decca, in all her hurt and all her brokenness, 
says, no one really wants my brokenness or wants to know the pain I'm feeling. And so I have to create an image. And the image says, I'm doing much better than I actually am. And I'm so proud and I'm looking on the upside of everything that's happening. Isn't this great? And her friendships go fine as long as she's putting on this image, which ultimately will be an exhausting road. We'll suck the life out of her because no longer can she be actually who she is, right? But she's suffering the loss of relationship. And the more she invests in the image, the more it will require of her and the more it will alienate her from her friends because they're not relating to her. They're relating to an artificial construction that she's made. It's a great picture of how Gentiles wrestle with the brokenness of the world. Right? They live in the same world. The same world is courses away from God. The same world that's under the power of the prince of the air. And the same world in which their hearts are broken and twisted. And as a Gentile, she said, you know, I'm trying to make my way through this pain and suffering. And I found myself creating illusions. I've experienced the temptation of escape. And I've had to create an image by which I can simply relate to people. And it's a desperately sad place to be. And yet, if we think about any of those items simply for a few moments, we realize that we still live like Gentiles. On and on, we constantly create illusion and escape and form images by which we navigate life. And that is is the most hopeless, sad story when you really start to think about the nature and condition of humanity. But it is into this broken and sad place that God rushes in in love. Why in the world would God do this? It's really, it's something that I don't believe I'll ever understand. And it's something only you can kind of walk up and gaze at and marvel at and start to walk around because it's so big, you're never really going to make it all the way around, but you can only glimpse at the different facets of it. In this sense, when I'm a creator and I create something and I create something that doesn't work right, I get so angry that I just want to crush and destroy it. Like if, I, if I'm trying to build something and it doesn't work out, my inclination is to take a hammer to it, right? And uh, God creates the world and humanity and by chapter six of Genesis, he says, you know, I'm sad I've done this. My heart is broken over humanity. And I would just snuff it out. It's a no-brainer for me. But God says, okay, no, I'm going to spend thousands of years and I'm going to sacrifice myself in order that the creation might be redeemed. It's like a prince rushing into a sleeping princess and awaking her uh, with a kiss. Paul says it more beautifully than that in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Which makes God, the Christian God, utterly unique. No God in love and mercy approaches the world to restore it in the history of the world. What other faith or philosophy has put forward a God who sacrifices himself, who lays down his own life for the redemption of his creation? It's absurd. It's absurdly beautiful. And it's only by locating oneself in this love and really dwelling upon this love and allowing this love to start to affect your heart that you begin to understand the, uh, the redemption that is in it. The freedom that is in it. Paul goes on, interrupted it for a moment in his own train of thought, and then again repeating in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
In other words, this is something that God has done that you have not contributed nor could contribute to. It is something that is born solely out of his love and his kindness and his mercy that you might be redeemed. And he gives you faith so that you would believe. That is how that you know that you're part of his redeeming purposes. And so what's the big deal? Well, the deal is very big. Because suddenly if I'm saved by grace and I realize that I was hopeless and could contribute nothing and have contributed nothing, that means that God really does love me ridiculously and it means that I'm his because he's done it all. But it also means that when we reflect on Decca and how the Gentiles walk, it means that I don't need to create an illusion to explain the world. I don't have to come up with a narrative by which I take responsibility, where I punish myself and say, oh, if you had only done this. No, I can simply say, yes, I am broken and sinful and run into the arms of a loving Savior. And I can actually admit that I am hopeless. I am a victim that is without recourse in the system that exists. No need to create a system. God has already handled the problem. If I'm tempted to escape, I don't need to escape. The, the thing that I really need to escape from, my Lord has run into on my behalf. The wrath of God. And so I can actually enter in the pain and suffering. And if God can create life and resurrection out of the cross, then I may not understand why what is happening in my life is happening. But I have to confess there's purpose. I have to confess there's intention. And here I can rely on a God who, who, if he loves me to this degree, I will presume that there are things that I cannot possibly understand and that he loves me even in the midst of my suffering and in the temptation to create an image, right? And how often do we do this? So I'm not going to tell you how sad I am or lonely or broken. I'm not going to tell you how much hatred is in my heart. Do you, know, you ever stop and think how much hatred is in your heart? A lot. I hate all of you. No, that's really interesting. The first service laughed. You're much more savvy because I'm deadly serious. I hate you when you don't worship me. I hate you when you don't say that was the most amazing service sermon ever. I hate you when you point out that I'm not doing something right. And I hate Jennifer when she has expectations of me that I don't like. And I hate my kids when they don't obey and do worship me as dad. Right? Sorry. But that is the reality. There's no end of hatred in your heart. There's no end of hatred in my heart. But I don't have to then pretend like, oh, I'm really this stand-up guy. Why? What would be the point? You You know how exhausting it is to manufacture that kind of image? I'm free from it. The sense that God knows who I am, I'm not fooling God, and still has rushed in to rescue me. And so I'm liberated from the ways that the Gentiles walk. Because I'm saved by grace, I don't need illusion, I don't need escape, I don't need image. And as a result, I can have the richest relationships possible. Because each of these three, three things not only devour me as a human being, but they devour any relationship I have with God by moving me away from Him. And they devour any relationship I would have with fellow believers because they also move me away from you. And they create an image relating to an image rather than two people relating to each other. And this is why at the very end in verse 10, Paul has the most beautiful turn of phrase. 
He says that, um, you know, not only is God affecting our rescue, but he says that we are his workmanship. You, you are a craft in the hand of God. He is whittling you. He is molding you like clay. He is making you into something better than what you have ever been. He's making you into what he intends for you to be. And this is why to realize that, that we are saved by grace through faith, there's nothing we can add to that, but you better believe that you're saved for something. You are saved from the wor- for the works that he has prepared beforehand in verse 10, the good works that you are called to do. To be engaged in action and to participate in this being made new and being pulled away from walking as the Gentiles walk and to walk as a way that actually tells the story of Jesus Christ and finds you deeper and deeper in him. This is why actions, participating in those good works, are not part of earning or contributing to our salvation, but they are part of that salvation being worked out. Do you trust in Christ to the degree that you are liberated from illusion and escape and image? How will you know? Well, you'll be running into good works. Why? Because you know that that's where more liberation lies. And if you're not running into good works, and if good works are a pain, then good works are this feeling of, well, God just has put another requirement on me, then you don't understand anything we've talked about. You're living in an image, you're living in an illusion in which your standing with God is bound up in the works that you do, and that's why they feel so oppressive. Realize that you have been liberated, liberated to be new in Christ. And in that newness, run into those works which will make you more and more new every day. Let's pray. God, our Father, for your great grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise your name this morning. It is a sad world, and there are, the forces are unquestionably aligned against us. But what does it matter? You are for us. What can stand against us? Thank you for liberating us and making us new, and please help us to walk to walk with and in Christ and not as the Gentiles do. And for that task, we pray that you would nourish us at this table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.